From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Well, we're not going to take your phone calls today because it is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Um, We're recording this a little bit early because by the time this program airs, mid-Friday afternoon, Colin will be in a tryptophan-induced coma. Uh, eating the leftovers of his turkey. We're gonna we're gonna use the microphone for the radio show today, if that's all right with you, Colin. That that would be fine. <laughs> I, a turkey leg would have been more appropriate because I do yeah. like my turkey legs. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, but uh, anyway, we hope you all had a terrific uh, Thanksgiving day, and um, we can't really talk about ours because we haven't really had it yet. But. Uh, True enough, um, yeah. You know, one thing, you know, we had our, one of our family traditions has always been to um, go to Mass on Thanksgiving morning. And, um, you know, we have in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, the culmination of that is the ultimate Thanksgiving, the Eucharist. You know, that's right. And I think we, we, we become so, you know, immunized against the meaning of the word. Uh, it's really our response of justice to the God who created us. And in... in of course, we look at the creatures around us, and we give thanks for the harvest, as the pilgrims did, which is the basis of this particular celebration of Thanksgiving. And we know that we have to give the ultimate gratitude to he who created the world and made the harvest bountiful and through the rain and the, and the sun and so on. And in the Mass, we, of course, we also render this act of justice to God the Father, except we do it for the redemption, and as our liturgical prayers themselves say, we do it through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And so it's a particular, every Mass is a particular act of thanksgiving for the redemptive mission of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us. Uh, And so it is the fulfillment of a debt of gratitude that we had to God, and specifically to, through Jesus as the Redeemer, Uh, we render that debt to the Father. So the very name Eucharistia in Greek means thanksgiving. So it is a central part of the Christian life, and of course we celebrate in in the United States, but in other countries like in my home and native land, Canada, they have Thanksgiving in October. And the, the idea there, of course, is to give thanks for the nation, for the bounty of the nation, I think uh, we have a special duty of thanksgiving for the freedoms that we still, at this moment at least, still possess uh, here in the United States and in Canada. And we hope that those those will always re- remain our possession and not be taken from us for whatever reasons. Uh, and so it's, it's a very important day, both civilly, but also especially in this theological dimension. And that's the specific dimension the pilgrims had in mind. Uh, And, of course, the going to the Mass on Thanksgiving uh, is our way of combining those two things into the greatest act of Thanksgiving there is, the the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And, of course, Thanksgiving also marks something for we as Catholics, and that's New Year's Day right around the corner from Thanksgiving. So we'll uh, begin the Advent season with the first Sunday of Advent, uh, day after tomorrow. We do, and uh, that has a different uh, approach to it because it starts out being penitential. 
Uh, we'll have the readings which recall the, the, the second coming of Christ to point out to you uh, that Christ will come as judge at the, at the end of time, uh, as the Creed has for 17 centuries now professed. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. He won't come a thousand years before the end, and he won't come, you know, a year before the end. He will come in glory at the end to judge the living and the dead, and the Church has professed this for uh, the better part of the last two millennia. And that's always been a part of the, part of the faith of, of the Church. And so we prepare by thinking about uh, the judgment. Uh, we will have the readings regarding the Second Coming. As I noted, we will have a sort of penitential dimension, a little Lent, as it has been called, we will wear the colors of penitence, the purples or violets. Uh, and then we, as we get closer, uh, the priest will switch to the, the rose-colored garments, uh, to sort of in the middle, but closer to the end of Advent, in order to appoint us to the ultimate objective of Advent, which is the celebration of the birth of our Lord, the nativity of our Lord. And so the last 10 days especially, uh, will be those wonderful days of the O Antiphons when we review the, uh, the Messianic prophecies and, and symbols of the Old Covenant uh, that pointed to the Redeemer, uh, whose birthday we will then celebrate on December 25th. And um, it's a special year this year because we get a full Advent season. Sometimes that fourth week of Advent is a day long. Uh, this year we get the whole week. We, we do, and, you know, that's just, a, that's just a function of the calendar, you know. Uh, so uh, you are right, we get a little bit longer to, uh, to both suffer and rejoice. Uh, yeah. yeah, and we also have, uh, as we do, you know, the, the, the similarities. It's not as, obviously not as penitential a year. More, you know, there's, there's penitence involved certainly in, in the Advent season, but it's more, you know, reflecting on True. the coming of, of Christ. But we do have some similarities, and that's the rose vestments that we wear on Laetare Sunday, which uh, sort of signifies the halfway point of the Lenten season. Right. And we have uh, the same thing uh, to commemorate the sort of the midway point of the Advent season. Right, and for the same logic, the Church wants us to now sort of turn our focus, especially in the in Lent period where we are dealing with the preparation of the catechumens for their full reception or full reception in the case of uh, non-Catholic Christians becoming Catholics. And so we have that, that turning towards Easter now more than from the penitential dimension. And so we get that, that, mom that moment of joy, that Sunday of joy, uh, more or less in the middle of those two seasons to, uh, to remind us that ultimately life itself, uh, if we persevere in the graces and the opportunities that God gives us, life itself will end ultimately in joy regardless of the sorrows and tribulations along the way. Uh, again, excuse me, a very a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, we're going to empty out the mailbag today. We may even have a listener comment line call or two for you later in the program, or we might not. We'll see. <laughs> um, Basil writes in, in California, was Christmas always celebrated on December 25th? Well, the short answer is no, uh, that the church settled on that uh, in a lot of ways by backing out the calendar as it did with some other feasts along the season. The church celebrate, started with celebrating on uh, Easter Sunday primarily, the celebration of the resurrection. Uh, the principal 
doctrine in terms of the anchoring, you know, teaching of the Christian faith, distinguished from, say, the faith of our Jewish forebears. And so that began that began the set the settling of a of a, a liturgical calendar, which from then well, has come the celebration of Lent prior and in preparation for Easter. Uh, the earliest celebration of the birth of our Lord was generally the celebration of the three kings, the announcement of the uh, of the birth of the Savior to the world. And or as so, my father always called them, the three wise guys. The three wise guys, yes. <laughs> Although in Chicago that would have a different meaning and in New York too, but maybe not in <laughs> Iowa. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but so... The Epiphany, of course, and then based on that, we church uh, began, especially in the West, to celebrate December 25th, going largely by the celebration of the Incarnation in March, March 25th, and the and the nine months. There is some evidence of a historical tradition that it occurred in December. Uh, there's other evidence which suggests in the spring. Uh, we have no way of resolving the historical question. The main question is the liturgical one. The liturgical one is the placement with respect to Easter and the other feasts and so on, and in that the, the celebration of Christmas in the dead of winter, mystically symbolizing the light coming into the world when the light is at its least in the natural order, uh, sets us up for the, uh, the celebration of the great feast of Christmas itself. You know, and quite frankly, I think that a lot of people who try to make the case and tell you why it couldn't be in December would be the exact same group of people, if we celebrated it in the spring, would explain to you why it couldn't be in the spring. You know, that could be. And one of the most specious arguments is that the church took a pagan feast day, the celebration of the Saturnalia, sort of a, you know, almost a drunken orgy kind of thing. Uh, and so co-opted that. And there's a certain amount of truth in that because the church, in other cases, co-opted those occasions, as it would later in Ireland with uh, Samhain, the celebration which we now is the, you know, Halloween, the East, the uh, All Hallows' Eve. But it did that in order to show, to make a theological point, Christ's conquest over that world, over the demons, over the devil. And it did it effectively. And throughout the Mediterranean, you find those symbols of Christian triumph on top of the destroyed symbols of, the, of paganism. And that was certainly the case with some of the feasts as well. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. No phone calls today, but we are here with our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. That's right. No phone calls today. We are emptying out the mailbag on this day after Thanksgiving. It's Black Friday, Colin. How do you feel about uh, doing radio instead of shopping on Black Friday? I hardly ever take advantage of Black Friday. Yeah, I never do. Yeah. No, yeah. that's, that's yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm not. I do not have the stomach for that. Um, we have an email here from Joan. She says, may I baptize my three-year-old granddaughter? Her parents are not practicing any religion. Uh, well, I would hope that your practice would be thinking at least of baptizing them into the Christian religion. Uh, but as far as the church is concerned, no. Um, 
you know, if the church does anything, it's to recognize the lines of justice. We talked about this in connection with the celebration of Thanksgiving. And that is we hold debts of justice to God, God whose providence has provided and wisdom has provided for creation, redemption, or sanctification, the church, the sacraments, and so on. And what would we be as a church if we didn't also recognize the authority that God gives to parents? And in his providence, the parents, the specific parents of specific children. And so the church recognizes that uh, that authority, and it doesn't, in, ex- in one exception, it, with one exception, it doesn't pastorally approve of the baptism of children against the will of their parents. The one exception is in the danger of death, and this means a legitimate danger of death, not just, uh, well, he's in danger of death, he's having this or that or the other thing, but a person who is really in danger of death if they are not yet an adult, do not have the, the uh, freedom of reason, in other words, have not gotten to the age of reason, can be baptized even against the will of their parents. That's the exception, because obviously in the end, the salvation of the child is the greatest thing. And I think the logic which the parents argues is sort of often, or the grandparents is, you know, well, if I don't do it, who will? Well, God knows the future of this child. God will determine that. To say that you don't, because I don't know this child would ever get baptized, or that the parents might change their mind and allow the baptism of the child, or other circumstances, or that they grow up as and as adults come into the church, is to basically make oneself the Lord of that child's history to take away from God what is his prerogatives, as well as taking it away from the parents. So for a lot of reasons, both theologically, logically, and, and obviously the pastoral one, of anybody who baptizes a child in such a circumstance must now go to the pastor of that child and tell them the child is baptized. So I would think that would make grandparents cautious about because they would have an obligation, because it is a sacrilege to baptize a child twice. And should that every child ever be baptized, again, it would not only be invalid because they're already validly baptized, it would be sacrilegious to do that, so at least materially. So I would encourage uh, grandparents not to do it for all of the sound theological and pastoral reasons, but also because they're going to have to immediately own up to the pastor so that it can be recorded. And he'll probably, I don't know what else he might want to do, but I think in the end it'll all come out. So um, there's a lot of trouble and difficulty for you if, if you were to do that, with very little good for the child in the long run because you will have usurped those who actually have authority over it. We would love to have you help us spread the good work that we're doing here at EWTN. You can become an EWTN media missionary. What does that mean? That means taking the uh, training and the materials that we provide for you into your parish uh, setting or into some other settings just to let people know about all the good things we're doing here at EWTN. If you'd like to learn more about doing that, simply log on to EWTNmissionaries.com. Michael says, I know a man in his late 20s, a husband and a father. He now claims to be transgender and dresses as a woman. He still goes to Mass. Should he be receiving communion? Well, um, 
I mean, there's a lot involved in that question. Has he done anything about it, or is he just cross-effectively cross-dressing at this point? Uh, I think the question is is something that you know he must ask himself. Um, if the pa- pastor ever needs to ask it, then hopefully you know he will take the opportunity to correct him and to uh, explain it to him. Um, I th- I think you know as we did recently, we did our 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 radio commentary version of the transgender series that aired on EWTN television. And I think in the pastoral point here, there, you know, a very strong case was made that we should recognize that such individuals are confused. We should probably recognize that there may very well be little moral uh, freedom for them to act differently. And I think to just jump in and insert oneself into that equation is uh, is not going to be ultimately helpful. First of all, it will, you know, it won't help them. Uh, so I don't I don't know what good could come from that. Sort of like the baptizing the the baby uh, against the will of the parents. Uh, there's very little good that can come from that, and for the individual in, in particular. Uh, we got an email here from Michael, and I don't know how much of this you can speak to specifically, but I think you can speak to the general topic of the question if you if you don't have specific knowledge. But it's from Michael, and he says, I am very interested in different liturgical rites that are celebrated in the Catholic Church. I was wondering if you could tell me if the rite of Lyon, the rite of Braga, the rite of Cistercian, the rite of Dominican, and the rite of uh, Premonstratinism, Stratensian, are still validly in use today. If this is too much of an ask, could you tell me all the liturgical rites and their variants validly used in the Catholic Church? And also, can you tell me, does every rite have a pontifical, solemn, and non-solemn form of Mass? Um, Some of those I can answer. (laughs) There are, when the, uh, we have to remember the liturgical situation before the Council of Trent course, in the context of the Reformation and the Protestant assault on the Mass and on the doctrines of the Church. When the Church codified the liturgy in order to protect it against the insertion of errors and so on that might have occurred, it did it in a climate in which there were a number of both, uh, you know, you might say organizational in terms of religious communities who had uh, very d- developments of the, of the basic liturgy. Uh, that had uh, taken to undertaken development within those uh, organizations, such as the the Dominican Order or the uh, the Cistercians. The Cistercians, yeah. So, in those particular cases, if it were three hundred years in existence, the Council of Trent and later Pius V in issuing the Roman Missal. Um, and in suppressing regional and other diocesan forms, such as were quite uh, quite common in Europe, they had the serum in in the British Isles. Um, uh, there were probably I don't know if there were existing uh, Celtic rites. Pretty much the uh, the Norman invasion of Ireland had successfully brought all of the uh, elements of the of the Celtic Church in Ireland into you know a perfect Roman harmony, if you will. Uh, but there was there were various you know various rites like that. Those that were over three hundred years old uh, survived. So the Mozarabic at Toledo in Spain, 
although I don't I think it's celebrated like once a year now. I don't know if it's really celebrated at all, but that was one of those that survived. The Brogan Rite, I've actually been at a couple of a couple of them. Uh, because the community that I was with for a while, the Canons Regular Holy Cross, some of their priests celebrated that. It was a community of Portuguese foundation uh, in the 1100s, uh, 11 and 1200s, uh, basically centered around that region. And so the uh, w- was the primal seat, the uh, primatial seat of Portugal had a right, and it is still, uh, it is still, I believe, exercised. I've uh, certainly was in the 80s and 90s. We can also look at the Dominican. I participated in those when I lived in Seattle, the Dominican parish there, Blessed Sacrament. Uh, there was an old, older priest who celebrated that. And, you know, at the, uh, at, you know, at the end of the day, if you wanted to go to the Mass at 5 o'clock, there you knew you were you could find a Mass. <laughs> so that was just by circumstance, really. I had that opportunity, and I found out a little bit about it because the first time I went... I wondered, what is this? It's neither the Roman <laughs> Rite or the Tridentine. <laughs> what is it? It was the Dominican Rite. Uh, so I assume that that is still celebrated, uh, and the Dominicans, uh, in virtue of the legislation of uh, uh, post-Tridentine legislation, have that right, and I don't know that any of those have been suppressed. There will be others in there. You mentioned the Cistercians. Uh, uh, I presume that that still... Any of those that were lawfully celebrated post-Trent would be lawfully celebrated today. I don't think any of those, uh, unless they have sort of died a death by attrition, and that, that's possible, and I don't know which ones those are. They are quite different. The major, the, the major distinguishing uh, Western rite that is not the rite of Rome uh, or the, even the right of the papal court is basically what was imposed on the West after Trent, uh, is the Ambrosian in Milan, which is still vital and alive and is still the, uh, the, the liturgy of the Archdiocese of Milan. So that's the major uh, non-Roman Western rite that continues in existence. Would have been the rite that gave us St. Augustine. Um, well, at some point that, I'm not sure of the timing of that, but, uh, remember that it, it could have named been after, after Ambrose. Ambrose it, yeah, I'm not exactly sure of the timing of that. Okay. Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, is in the house. I'll give you, I'll give you the question if you can't finish it before we have to take a pause, then we'll get it on the... Other side, Claire says, "Why does the Latin Church not chrismate and commune infants the way we do in the Byzantine rite? Why are the Latin babies given the grace of baptism but not chrismation or communion? Why are two of the sacraments of initiation withheld if this is about the child's identity as a Catholic?" Yeah, there's sort there's sort of a preview of confirmation in the anointing with holy chrism, but it's not the sacrament of confirmation uh, in the West. Um, I've never heard a satisfactory explanation. I have Me an ex- <laughs> I have an explanation, and that is the Western Church, the Roman Church specifically, has been the most evangelical of the churches in the sense of taking the gospel uh, all over the world. 
with rapid growth in Europe, with the evangelization of Europe, whereas the Eastern, the, the Eastern churches very often became more or less linguistically associated and, and ritually associated with particular regions of, of Slavic Europe and so on, uh, the Greek, and of course the Greeks as well. So I think part of it was the, the difficulties that are associated with that, which we can touch on, I think, after, after the break. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. We're emptying out the mailbag here with Colin Donovan, our very own Vice President of Theology on Open Line Friday. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. We won't be taking your calls today, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. We're discussing why we don't give all the sacraments of initiation to babies in the Roman Rite. Yeah. And I think these are all historical developments. First of all, we have to recognize the sacraments are severable. In other words, there's no necessity that they be together. The actual fact is that they were all given together in the early church. But you have to think of those that historical context, and that is the apostles going, evangelizing, uh, con- uh, people converting, being baptized and anointed and receiving the Holy Eucharist. That was a very possible thing uh, in the early days of the church. And even as the church continued the celebration where the the priest, uh, although the bishops had the presbyters as their uh, assistants in carrying on the work, there was still a period of time when the the, the then weekly liturgy, uh, predominantly, was a celebration of the whole uh, presbyterate, including the bishop. And so around the bishop. And that works fine in a locale, and it looks works fine with limited numbers. But then when you look as the church expanded into Western Europe and ultimately Africa and the Americas and Asia and so on, and, and much, much later, of course, and the numbers of people coming in, the division of the church, not just in dioceses, but with a bishop, but into parishes. And so people who are, we get, we see the, you might say the what has become the norm of the post-Tridentine period, where adults would be uh, brought into the church, would be you know each year at the bishop would chrismate them and children as well, uh, began to be the norm because it was a practical solution to the you know to the numbers of people in the West that came into the church and received the sacraments. So I think it developed in that context. And so when you you can't really compare, I don't think, the extension of the church into Western Europe and then overseas to the Americas and to Asia and Africa, uh, necessarily with the situation of the churches in the different different Slavic countries or or in in the other, you know, the countries that make up the Eastern churches, which effectively became national churches uh, of some kind, whether in India or whether in Syria or in uh, Iraq. Uh, these became the national rights of, of those communities, the different Syriac versions and so on. And that's a different development than we see in the West. So I think there is the ideal which is observed in the early church. 
I think, continues to be observed in the, um, uh, in the Eastern churches, uh, but which gave way to practical things in, in the Western church in Rome and Milan and elsewhere. And so I think, I think there certainly is a sense that that could be corrected historically, uh, but that day has not yet arrived. Uh, but practically speaking, the sacraments are severable one from another, uh, and so that's the practical solution which the Western Church chose in its particular historical development. Ron writes in, My wife is Catholic and I am Methodist. I want her to come to church with me every other Sunday. Will she be meeting her Sunday obligation if she attends my church? She thinks she must go to her Mass. <laughs> Well, that's a that, that wouldn't be a mass. So let's let's clear yes, that up yeah. right off the bat here. Yeah. Right. Um, well, for her, I think the obligation is to make holy the Lord's day, the third commandment. The mass is a Catholic specification of the third commandment, which is why it's under pain of mortal sin not to to you know unjustifiably uh, not go to mass on Sunday. Uh, it is gravely wrong to do that. We have this obligation of giving thanks to God, as we, you know, we were talking about earlier. And so the Mass is the way we give thanks to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so for the Catholic, that's, that's serious. Uh, I would say that in making the day holy, she certainly does make the day holy by going to Mass. In fact, she couldn't make it holier. Um, unless her church specifically is obliging her to go on Sunday— uh, which it's the a different church does not do, which it does not do. Then she doesn't have an obligation to go on Sunday, even an obligation of conscience. Um, if if she ha- feels she has that obligation, I think it's one that, you know, in her own heart of hearts, she believes to, you know, she needs to do that. But it doesn't seem the church is demanding it of her, and the third commandment doesn't dem- demand it of it, demanded of her, and only the special authority of the apostles appointed by Christ and their successors uh, can possibly demand it of Catholics, and they do. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday, so we're emptying out the mailbag. No phone calls today. Ivy says, where does the church stand on energy healing and chakras? Ah. Well, on Where's my on, wife when you need her. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been on enough uh, on her show to know how it would be answered in general. Uh, she would probably. Uh, I, I will more stick to she my would own. Get a field. little more fired up about it. Uh, than I think. I think to. probably would. Yeah, especially had Sue Brinkman on that. <laughs> yeah. She'd be. It would be a. It would be a slugfest against chakras and and, and energy. Uh, the church has a position. Uh, it's a position I think which is well thought out, and it doesn't make a special attack of that necessarily. Uh, and although it is mentioned in a document on piety, which the Holy See put out years ago in talking about these kinds of things. But the argument goes like this. These are creations of particular Eastern philosophies and religion, which have nothing to do with the, with the you know, divine revelation, whether of the Old or the New Testament. Uh, they're of dubious scientific value, uh, so you only have some attachment to the Eastern philosophies and religions to make you believe that there is some energy that you can manipulate or that there are chakras to align. Uh, and to do have that attachment is to dismiss the obligations that you have 
to your attachments to to Christ and to the church, um, and even if you're a non-Catholic Christian, to to Christ at least. And so, the only value that I think that can be asserted there is if science were to ever demonstrate some natural, some natural explanation to cover these things, as has been done in certain other practices. Uh, chiropractic, uh, there's some evidence, I, you see from time to time articles regarding acupuncture and what, what might, may or may not be going on there. But that that would have to be the, the scientific basis, something along uh, those lines demonstrated in the natural order. What is difficult for the Christian with the Eastern uh, practices is they rely on a different logic. They rely on the existence of impersonal powers. The church says there are no impersonal spiritual powers. There are personal spiritual powers. We call them the good angels and the bad angels. So whatever is at work in the use of such energies, if there is no natural basis, and I know of none ever having been demonstrated, then it's an appeal to powers which are outside the will and the design of God the Creator, Um, powers which are in rebellion from him, and so there is a moral danger and, uh, and is certainly a spiritual and salvific danger associated with willingly putting yourself into a philosophical mindset that you think these things exist and you're going to take advantage of them, and even worse, that you can manipulate them and they're not going to manipulate you. That is foolhardy and stupidity of the greatest order. Uh, again, a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. No phone calls today, please. Um, Topher writes in, do we know anything about St. Paul before his conversion? Well, we know what Scripture tells us. He was, a, uh, he was a very fanatical follower of Gamaliel, one of the great Jewish uh, philosophers, one of the great rabbis of history, you know, in terms of the, the content of the what would then be, you know, later be the the, the, the writings uh, based on that, the Talmud, the Mishnah, and so on. Uh, and so Paul shows that, and he even, he, one, at one point, in uh, having become a Christian, he explicitly tells you his story of, you know, how he was a follower in, you know, to, we would say, to the nth degree of all of this oral teaching and the oral law and the fidelity that was required and the keeping of the 616 uh, laws and uh, essentially. uh, So that tells us what he was. He was a a disciple, a rabbi himself, a follower of Gamaliel. He went off on his own. He began to persecute the Christians, Christians because he thought it was his obligation to God, not because he necessarily hated them, but if God hated them, he hated them, and he needed to persecute and punish them. And Christ knocked him off his horse and set him straight. Uh, can we say with certitude that he was at the stoning of St. Stephen? Um, we are told that he laid his—or um, actually, Stephen's cloak was laid down at the feet of, of a young of, man of named a young, Paul. Yeah. Named Saul. So we're assuming so. We're assuming this Saul is the same Saul that became Paul because he then goes off wanting to go to Damascus and to round up those evil Christians and has an awakening. 
We know what happened on that trip. Yes, yes. Uh, Amy writes in, my daughter-in-law is in RCIA. Can she participate in Mass by doing the sign of the cross and kneeling? She can participate in Mass all she wants, except for receiving Holy Communion. That's the only exception. Uh, the Church no longer enforces what was the early discipline of the uh, catechumens leaving uh, after the Liturgy of the Word. Part of that was there was actually— At least, pre- not, at least not everywhere. Not everywhere. <laughs> so, you know, they, they, they sometimes uh, do that as a you know, sort of, a, I think, a, a nod to that practice. Well, uh, I think practice. some people actually use it as the formation time. You know, a lot that, of people, right, a because lot of people there will meet in an evening weekday or something like that, but some people actually use that time to... Yeah, and they're still formation. not under obligation right. to be there because they're not members of the church, right. technically. So they, they're, they're freely there, and they participate as they're asked to participate. But it, that's a, that would be just a continuation of the, uh, of the early practice. Uh, but there is, uh, you know, unless that is obliged on you by your RCIA team, then you're, you know, you're free to uh, to go to Mass even on the weekdays and get closer and closer to the Lord. Because uh, if you, he's there and you're there, what could be better? Grant writes in, how do I explain to my Protestant friend why he shouldn't become a Messianic Jew but a Catholic? Well, I think the Messianic Jews who have come into the Church, who talk about being fulfilled in Christ and in the Church, uh, I think those they make very good arguments. And there's a, a group called Hebrew Catholics. I don't know if they're still a very society exist- of Hebrew Catholics. The Society of Hebrew that Catholics was, uh, f- uh, formed and headed up by uh, the former Rosalind Moss, now Mother Miriam, Miriam of God, right, her brother. Yeah. David. And before that, there was a priest. Like he's very, uh, I remember reading his little pamphlets decades ago uh, that started up that, uh, uh, that community. So well, I think it was associated with the New Hope uh, community in Kentucky, if I'm not mistaken. Does that uh, ring a bell? Well, when David Moss was running them, they were in, in St. Louis, so I'm not sure. Yeah, there may be talking two different things there. But yes, uh, there are. I think the biggest logic is this. It's clear from the Old Covenant that God formed a people. He formed a people. He gave them a law. He gave them pastors. Uh, he gave the priests, the high priests, the, uh, the other priests and the Levites, a hierarchical order, if you will. Uh, he gave them liturgical rites. He gave them all of this. Did he do that in vain, or did he do it as a predisposition and a a pointing foreshadowing of the ultimate fulfillment of his uh, commitment to the redemption of the human race. I think the most Jewish thing is to to think that all of that was preparing for the fullness and that this exists today in the Catholic Church. The only institution, uh, even if you can say the Orthodox and the Catholics were one for millennia, they're survivingly, at least around the Pope, the only institution in continuous existence from the time of Christ that can demonstrate that continuity, that contains the elements which fulfill the Jewish rites and rituals because they were elevated to a Christian meaning in Christ. You know, as I believe it was Jerome who said that the, you know, the, the Old Testament uh, prepared for Christ, and that it's fulfilled in the new. So all of those things that prepared for Christ are fulfilled in the church, fulfilled in the new covenant. Uh, I don't understand why a Jewish person would set that all aside 
for what is you know one of the Protestant low churches or even the evangelical churches. I remember a friend of mine who who once who was a Jewish, actually a rabbi, uh, would become a rabbi. Said that you know someone he knew very well had become an evangelical, and he didn't understand that because he saw you know as somebody on his way to being a rabbi that really only the Catholic Church, you know. For a, for a Jew was the place where fulfillment of all that being Jewish meant. Now, he never took that step himself, to my knowledge anyway. But the point is still the same of that continuity. So I don't, uh, I guess you, you might say that it's wonderful for any any person, any uh, Jewish person to be baptized and come into the church. But I think it's more wonderful when you look at some of the the great Jews who have come into the church uh, Anita Stein, for example, you might encourage him to read the autobiography of Edith Stein, Life in a Jewish Family, where she display, this, uh, she talks about her fall from her Orthodox Jewish background into agnosticism and atheism, and her rise from that because she stumbled across uh, Teresa of Avila's writings in the home of a Protestant friend. <laughs> so what a remarkable <laughs> trilogy there. <laughs> Jews, Catholics, and Protestants all bringing St. Edith Stein who would, who would die and offer a sacrifice in Auschwitz for her own people. So I think there's a lot to recommend becoming a Catholic uh, if a Jew is thinking of following Christ and wants to be his disciple. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. We're not taking any phone calls today as we empty out the mailbag. Jane writes in, is there a point where we are beyond forgiveness and can't utilize confession anymore? I find myself despairing sometimes even after confession. I think that's worth a good talk with a spiritual director because, you know, if coming out of confession you're, you're despairing, there's something else at work there. Uh, for starters, you know, whether in some incipient way or even specifically the devil is at work there, certainly in the idea that would lead one to think that even though they've confessed and done so genuinely that they're no longer, you know, they're not forgiven. Uh, The church, Christ gave the church the ministry of the priesthood. He gave it the power to absolve and retain. The very first act after the resurrection was to say to the apostles, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven, whose sins you shall retain. The reason he died was to be able to say that to the apostles so that they could say it to you. And so believe Jesus, believe the priest when he says that to you. But you may need help because we get all wrapped up in our own minds and our own emotions and you need probably need some help to sort that sort that out. And so I would say schedule something with, if you know a, a good and holy priest, especially one who's knowledgeable, uh, you know, in the circle of clergy, maybe it's your pastor or an assistant or in the circle of the clergy you know in their diocese, uh, go have a talk to them about it because uh, they're trained to know the way to help lead people out of this chail tasting you know, that you get into when you think that you're not really forgiven. Um, Joan writes in, many Vietnamese recognize three gods, wealth, prosperity, and longevity. My question, are the people who worship these pagan gods 
really praying to demons? There's a mix in, I mean, I think most scholars would say that many of the pagan religions are merely human creations. Some of them were demonic, and it's hard to tell. This sounds a little bit more benign than human sacrifice, and that it maybe sounds like a good, <laughs> you know, almost a poetic say what's in poetic way of saying what's in in their own lives. Um, theoretically, yes, uh, certainly when you look at the, the the pagan gods of history, that would be true. But this sounds a little bit different. It sounds like a modern a modern version, uh, maybe even an agnostic version of what's important in the life of those of those people. Um, I'm not uh, I'm not familiar enough with the non-Christian practices because although I know hundreds of Vietnamese over the course of years, they've all been Catholics because of the con- the French missionaries there in the 1800s, and uh, you know great Catholics, great community of Dominicans near Houston, for example. Some of their sisters I taught uh, they had sent to Aquinas when I was teaching there. And uh, many Dominican friends. We had thirteen Vietnamese or Vietnamese friends, thirteen Vietnamese who were refugees from communist Vietnam, uh, in the seminary up in British Columbia at Christ the King, uh, Christ the King Seminary. Uh, so that's been my experience of the Vietnamese: really devout, love, you know, love Jesus in the Eucharist, the Blessed Mother, uh, devout in every respect. Uh, so this sounds like maybe maybe a modern excuse for living the good life and uh, being comfortable in living the good life. Um, Paul says, since capital punishment has been made federally legal again, would politicians being in support of capital punishment be found just as morally wrong as them being in support of abortion? No, I don't think so. And uh, I always go back to, we were talking earlier about the Ambrosian Rite in St. Ambrose and St. Augustine. Uh, St. Ambrose wrote to a judge in the 360s regarding the judge's involvement in a capital case of soldiers who did a massacre of civilians, a terrible crime. And the judge was in a quandary because he knew that his Christian forebears, his Catholic forebears, uh, avoided involvement in capital uh, judgments uh, during the years of persecution. They couldn't serve in positions. And so that the church favored the conversion of individuals, not their being put to death. And he asked Ambrose about this. And Ambrose's response was that he pointed him to the example of Christ and the woman caught in adultery, And he used this as a starting point for a discussion of basically this very question you asked. And that is that what did Christ say? He didn't say it was wrong to put the woman to death. After all, the Mosaic law came from God through Moses. But the Mosaic law was a teacher, as St. Paul. It was a tutor, as St. Paul taught. It's to teach us about justice. Christ came to teach us about love and mercy. But, What Ambrose says is he can understand why a judge would see that it's necessary to punish the criminal, even with death, for the the purpose of teaching others not to follow their example. But yet he held out the better way, 
was the way of Christ in with the woman caught in adultery, which was not to say they were wrong in their desire to stone him because they were following the Mosaic law, but to say, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. That's different. That's a different judgment than saying that it is intrinsically evil to stone her. He did not say that. And so neither does the church today say that. Even uh, Pope Francis, in his revision of the catechism in this point, he points to the evangelical motive. Which was essentially a revision of John Paul II's revision. Uh, 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 right, it was, a, it was sort, of a, sort of a deepening of the catechesis on this subject. And I still believe St. Ambrose's explanation to this judge uh, is the best uh, example of that. Uh, and I also think that it's something we need to consider and that judges need to consider and Catholics in positions to, uh, on juries, they need to consider that. Uh, and that it is, on the one hand, it's not wrong to uh, execute punishment, but Christ and the Church would prefer uh, the other path. And he gives us that example in the Gospel. And just really quickly, about a minute and a half left, how is it possible for the church to offer plenary indulgences that take away time in purgatory? That's from Perry. Well, time in purgatory hasn't begun, and what it is, it's an appeal to the merits of Christ and the saints, and the Blessed Mother and the saints. Uh, and it does that because that it is calling the person to that perfection of act, which is the disavowal of even attachment to venial sin. That's always been the tough element. You, it's easy enough to do the work, although sometimes they can be involved, to say the prayers for the Pope, to go to confession and communion, but that detachment from venial sin probably kills a lot of plenary indulgences because we're very, you know, we really don't want to be detached from those things which uh, we find to be wonderful and pleasant and maybe a little bit sinful. You know, it's really easy to get off in the weeds when we talk about what it means to be detached from sin, even venial sin. But I, I kind of like what Father John Tregilio says. He's, his definition is, do you look back at your old sins with fondness? Right, and we can't do that because that actually would revive the guilt, and we don't want to do that. We hope you all have a great start to your Advent season. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, producer Michael McCall, our call screener who is not working right now, but he's Matt Kubensky. We'll give him a shout-out anyway. <laughs> I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to this mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Back at it again on Monday with Father Trujillo. Until then, God bless. <laughs>